Welcome back to part two of episode three, entitled Campus Perspectives of Racism, Decolonization, and Occupational Consciousness. We rejoin our hosts and our speaker, Prof. Ramugondo, for a deeper dive into the discussions around combating racism on our campus and how this responsibility can affect us as a student body. question um, just based on what you said now is how we find ourselves being in this global capitalistic patriarchal western centric and church centric and modern colonial word world and we find ourselves being in in these institutions and we find ourselves being taught by these institutions and I just want to bring it down to our faculty and just to what extent has the faculty embraced this? To what extent has the faculty realized this? And what does work, what, what does moving forward mean? And what does it look like? Mm-hmm. So, you know, I was at Senate um, when uh, the former uh, prof, um, Mayosi, our former dean, when his response to a student's call for the removal of Cecil John Rhodes, the Cecil John Rhodes statue, um, where, when his response was, you know, this is, this is it's a rapture. <laughs> I, was, I was one of those who spoke, um, also saying, you know, as Senate, we have to support the move for the statue to be removed because the argument that was put forward by the Rosemars Fall um, movement and, and the students that were representing others at Senate was very, very persuasive. Mm. Um, you know, it was an overwhelming majority that uh, had um, Senate uh, support uh, the call for the removal of the Cecil John Rose statue and uh, our former Dean, Prof. Mayosi, had a lot to do with that, you know, uh, uh, persuading uh, Senate. So you can imagine that someone who does that at Senate, uh, uh, what he would do when he is Dean, right? So the, w- one of the, um, I mean, it's, it's, I'm not saying this uh, to just, um, make Prof look good, I'm saying it because it's fact. He pushed for the curriculum change working group, which was uh, at the time, um, you know, leading um, a process of engagement uh, university-wide around decoloniality. He felt that it was important to have on this faculty a uh, pilot of what it would mean to decolonize the curriculum. And of course, he did that um, also supported and urged by one member of the um, curriculum change working group at the time, Professor Hasha Kathar. But he didn't think, you know, there was any uh, thing that, was, uh, I mean, it just made sense to him, Um, this is where we're going, right? And what that meant was that the Faculty of Health Sciences committed itself um, to adopt 
the curriculum change framework, which came out of that work. And I am pleased that the Transformation and Equity Committee in the Faculty of Health Sciences currently is still pushing <laughs> for us to um, live that commitment. So the curriculum change framework has been adopted by the faculty and the current dean team to proceed with the work. And I'm not sure if you've read the curriculum change framework, but if you have, I know sometimes you want to go back and revisit. Uh, and it's, it's important. I often, yeah, I mean, I've, I've, I, I, I played a key role in crafting the whole document, but I find that I have to go back and say, oh my goodness, we actually wrote this. We actually wrote this, you know? <laughs> and, and because, you know, what many people don't realize is that what students did in 2015, 2016 was articulate uh, something that people were feeling and were living. But, you know, exactly because of this uh, co-option into the zone of being, and, 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 and assimilation, um, you sort of think, oh, okay, well, it's not that bad, you know. I, all I can, you know, this upward mobility will help me and my family and perhaps a few people that I take along, right? And then you lull yourself in thinking that it can work. But students who are at the uh, brunt of experiencing what it means to be in a classroom and feel like you don't exist, that there's no future for you. Because in the senior years, you're not seeing postgraduate students who look like you, right? You, 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 you realize, mm, I'm not going to make it. Mm. And, and if you remember, a lot of what students were saying in 2015, 2016, is that exclusion. Is, a, is, is inevitable, right? It, it was during those times that students were beginning to alert us to the number of suicides mm. and that suicides at UCT had a complexion. So you can imagine, you have some of your classmates begin you know, to say, you know, say that there's no other way out but to take one's life. They are your classmates. Some don't succeed, but they are telling you these things. And exclusion is inevitable for many of you, obviously. And then you have to look at the statue every day and you read up on what it means right there. It's, 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 there's just no avoiding um, uh, 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 um, what you see. So, so, so when, when we were engaging, on the issues that students were raising and writing um, uh, our observations, our analysis, and, 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 and looking at things from a decolonial perspective, they, we were given a new language um, at, at, about a reality that was not far from our own realities, right? So now and again, you, you feel, did we actually say that? And I mean, I, I look at the questions that we asked, um, which interestingly, the uh, university executive have had no um, chance to avoid. Um, so you will see these questions arise now and again. And there are four questions. What knowledge? Mm. Whose knowledge? 
what and who gets privileged, whose interests dominate. I mean, you can forget everything about what is in the curriculum change framework, but those four questions are critical. Now, I'll tell you something that we've started uh, doing and we are pushing for, you know, right? And it, it arose um, during uh, the faculty assembly in 2015, right? And uh, I was asked uh, to, to support the dinner at the time to have the faculty assembly so that we can hear students speak for themselves what it is that bothers them. And one thing that I never forgot was how students spoke about how Isikosa is taught compared to Africans, okay? Now you remember what I said about <laughs> the essential foundations of a nation yeah. and the role of language, okay? I'm sure you're also watching the news about how the um, changes around language policy at some universities are being challenged and successfully so in court because those who speak Afrikaans understand the value of language for a people, all right? So now when I keep going back to that critique from students and recently I thought, you know, we still haven't done enough for this. We still haven't done enough. And I propose to colleagues here that it is time. It's time that we center African languages in order to decolonize curriculum. There is something powerful about languages and health. And the COVID-19 moment has really made that crisp in my in my mind right so when you when you think about type 2 diabetes and you think about people being more at risk because they have type 2 diabetes right and you think about what it means to monitor someone who has type 2 di diabetes so that if they are infected with covid-19 they don't necessarily have to succumb uh, to the illness okay can you imagine what it would mean if all our students were empowered to speak in their own languages, in, la in ways that their own communities could understand what this is all about. Okay, can you imagine that? So, so when we say Africans is taught well and we, we don't begrudge Africans, let that continue. But we also want African languages to be centered, right? And we start with the Isikosa. You have to start somewhere, right? You have to start somewhere. So we are putting forward for, for funding, and this is funding from government, hey? So we're saying, if this is money from government, and government is saying, hey, do something to capacitate yourselves, to strengthen, uh, you know, curricula, transform it or decolonize it. I mean, they're giving us that opportunity. We're saying, it's time, let's do this. So we, we're putting in uh, for funding. And the reason we're doing that is because there's one um, 
I mean, there's more than one. There are a number of uh, PhD students that are supervised uh, and some that are su I'm supervising that are doing exciting, exciting work. So one uh, that I supervised and she's already done, she's now doctor, is Dr. Matumo Ramafigeng. And, and you know, when I was head of OT, we pushed and, and she was uh, in my staff and we pushed to make sure that we have 100% pass rate um, in the final year, right? But then we looked at the marks, we're like, still you have uh, black students having that ceiling, you know, the 50%, 65, if you like it. Mm. No, <laughs> we don't want them to just pass. We want them to do well. We want brilliance to shine through, right? So that then became her work to say, how do we figure out what is it that makes it impossible for students who are not English language first speakers to navigate, practice, and translate theory into, into practice in a language that is not their own. And it was amazing <laughs> how she was able to unpack how discourses work. You know, you get into these universities, you have to learn a language beyond just English, but ways of being in someone else's culture, mm. right? So let's find ways to center our own cultures and starting with language. So you can understand what it means when you are Isikosa speaking and you are in practice with someone who's, who's your, you know, the person that you're serving who speaks Isikosa. Why must you speak in English? For the benefit of your examiners, right? Who should benefit in this interaction, right? So, 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 so getting to that point and beginning to understand how we can communicate around health matters in African languages in ways that are regarded knowledge and scientific. We can do it. And that's what we are pushing for. Uh, that's the big uh, project that we are working, working, working on. And, and we're working with humanities uh, or people in humanities and chaired uh, or the Center for Higher Education. Um, yeah. It's so exciting to hear the work that's being done, um, especially the progress that's been made in such a short period of time. Um, I think we're just wondering what sort of support um, does the faculty need from individual lecturers, conveners, HODs for this to be successful? And I think what roles do students and young academics play? And how do you see that changing over the next few years? Yeah. Okay, sure. This is the next slide. Um, now I know it uh, doesn't take long actually. Uh, so we were uh, on the racialized line of being and, and, and being human. So the first thing, Sylvia uh, and Simple, I, I, I want to highlight is that denialism is dangerous, right? If people deny that racism exists, in the way that I've articulated. They've already started, they've already started killing our efforts, okay? And like I've said, there are consequences to racism and it is genocidal, okay? So denialism is basically saying it's okay 
for racism to lead to genocide, okay? So the first thing to do is for people to admit that racism exists and it exists at a systemic, structural, and institutional level. Denying it is not going to help. It's not gonna go away just because you don't want to see it, right? Because oftentimes people are comfortable to admit that people can treat each other badly, right? That, you know, I can be uh, racist in my behavior towards you. It's maybe that I can be racist in my attitude towards you, but how is that going to stop you, your child, your nephew, and your sister from having opportunities that matter? It's not, right? So you can't tell me that it is okay to focus on individuals that we deem to be racist without dismantling a racist system. You, so so our, our attention should be on the system, not individuals. You know, I know that people get very upset when they are called names, you know, but with, you know, someone like me, uh, and I, it could be that my positionality allows me to just allow any water to flow over my back. I can be called an N-word. It's not going to keep me awake at night, right? But if you say, if, you, if, if, if it's possible for me and people like me to be prohibited and uh, stopped from progressing. If postgraduate students who look like me cannot progress like other students who are white, that is the pernicious uh, system that needs to be solved. I'm more interested in dismantling those barriers such that it shouldn't matter whether a student is white, brown, pink, or black, that these are students who will progress because we have put in place what, met, you know, it should, it should be that we are able to say when we see that progression is along racial lines, we figure out where the problem is and we deal with it. Yeah, so, so, so denial, denial, dealing with denialism is the first thing, right? The same way that we were worried about um, um, AIDS denialism, we should worry about racism denialism. Okay, so that's, that's the first thing that, that I, would, I, would, I would do. The next thing is that um, once you have uh, acknowledged that there is a problem, <laughs> you've, 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 you've acknowledged that there is a problem, the first thing is to stop doing that which perpetuates racism. Just stop. You know, because the inclination is for people to ask for forgiveness. Okay. You know, let's reconcile. 
How do we reconcile before you have acknowledged, named, and stopped? First, stop doing that which perpetuates racism. Yeah? For those that are in positions where they feel oppression, so the, the materiality of domination through violence and oppression, oppression, it is important to ask those difficult questions, right? So those questions that I, I, I spoke about, what knowledge, whose knowledge, what and who benefits, right? Whose interests dominates? Those questions are not easy. <laughs> They're not easy. And, and if you don't allow yourself to ask those questions, you allow the system to get away with murder, literally. Okay? So I'm going, you can see the, the slide now, right? So you will see that I've added a box um, above the line of the human. So one effective way of continuing with denialism is to find words that sound nice. And we say, well, but we have human rights. Right? We have diversity, we have inclusion, we have development, right? When these words are used, just look a bit deeper and say, who's saying it, right? Have they done anything that would mean that blackness, does not mean negation. Yeah. So human rights, where it is taken for granted that all humans matter. You know that uh, usual uh, rebuttal when people um, speak about Black Lives Matter. So the retort is all lives matter. What people are doing there is to shift your attention from anti-black racism, right? To suddenly say, but we have these um, policies in place, you shouldn't feel the need to um, raise your voice because all is well, right? It's very easy to speak about diversity without redress, without equity. It's very easy to talk about inclusion without paying attention to exclusionary behavior, exclusionary practices. It's very easy to talk about development without asking those who are supposedly being developed to speak for themselves. Right. So for many of us, um, it has become very, yeah, it's, it's, I, maybe I've become very suspicious, but the minute someone wants to talk about human rights without social justice, I worry, right? Um, 
So I've <laughs> for, 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 for my sins, I guess, and also because of the, my partner in crime, who is a white man from the Netherlands, who uh, happened to be my PhD student at some point, he insisted on me supervising him because he knew that I will push him to think and go through the difficult questions that he needed to ask himself. And I wasn't surprised that he got to that point where he realized that being human cannot, it's not, you know, it's, it's, it's dangerous to take it for granted. It's dangerous to take being human as something that can be taken for granted. That actually being human is a poten potentiality, right? We can, as a society, become a society where de dehumanization is perpetuated or a society that is in the practice of humanizing. Right? So basically what he's saying is that humanity is work, right? So he listened very carefully when we spoke and wrote together about Ubuntu, right? Ubuntu is a concept from this continent that is often misunderstood and misused, right? Because often people think about Ubuntu as you know, I am because we are, and it stops right there. Without realizing actually that Ubuntu is deeper than that. And, 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 and writers like Ramose uh, make this point very clearly that Ubuntu is a process of always becoming, right? And as a people, you can become more human or less so that you always have a responsibility to make sure that as a collective, you are a community or society where you can look after each other, especially the most vulnerable amongst you. Okay. You can't just sign the Declaration of Human Rights and say, we're done. Right? So you can't just have a South Africa, a constitution, and say we are done. I mean, and the examples are many that even in South Africa, with a constitution that is celebrated all over the world, not everyone can draw from that constitution to have their rights observed. I mean, Makate, Vodacom, right? I mean, it's an interesting example because as a young person who <laughs> innovated, you know, through Please Call Me and had a whole company um, decide actually, no, <laughs> you might have come up with the idea, but you don't deserve to gain from that innovation, right? It is left up to him to try and access legal courts to fight for his justice. Where's our constitution, right? Where's our constitution uh, where 
a one, you know, one language group can take universities to court and be listened to, right? Whereas you have some languages that have begun to die. But we say South Af in the constitution, in the preamble, South Africa is for all who live in it, right? So, 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 so there, there, there is something to be done about interrogating terminology that cultivates amnesia. Okay, right. So this, these are terminologies that, I mean, you, you know some of these and it starts to speak to the next question or some of the questions that I saw. Um, so occupational apartheid is a, it's a term that uh, Frank, uh, my partner in crime, um, uh, coined occupational consciousness. You've heard about, you know about in college, collective occupations. Um, it's, 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 it's probably a new term for you. But these are concepts that we did not dream of, <laughs> right? But based on everyday observation and saying, how do we allow for theorization and a language that speaks to our reality and something that we want to change in the world? So for a Dutchman coming to South Africa, married to a black South African, having children who are of mixed heritage, when he looks around and he says, no, but in the Netherlands, they wouldn't tolerate this. Streets with names that are from the Netherlands. I mean, how did you guys allow this, right? So, because he was, from where he was standing, he was saying, but this is, this, we wouldn't tolerate this where we come from. So why should they tolerate it, right? So occupations uh, that people engage in, uh, for him, he also started saying, but where I come from, you know, young people go to school without having to worry about money. Uh, children have a right to education by, the, by virtue of the fact that they are born, right? So then apartheid for him, was continuing even post-1994 in the way that people were able to access meaningful occupation or not. And you know that with us occupational therapists, we understand human occupation beyond paid employment is that which we do every day, which can bring meaning or otherwise into people's lives. Yeah, so we, we, we appreciate both the benign the good part of doing in the world, but also that you can do in the world in ways that bring you ill health. I mean, we've already spoken about diabetes, type two diabetes, and, and also what we've found ourselves having to, 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 to eat for our sustenance that actually work against our health. I mean, there's a, there's a PhD student that is looking exactly at that, looking at food occupations for health. And what is it that makes it possible or not for communities that live in um, resource-constrained uh, circumstances, right? And then um, collective occupations is really just um, recognizing that 
in occupational therapy, we've always just focused on individuals, right? Because those are the people that you see when you're in a uh, healthcare setting. You rehabilitate an individual. Who cares where this individual is going back to, right? If this was someone who had a stab wound and had a spinal cord injury, right? You rehabilitate them, they go, it's, but it becomes something else when you suddenly realize, oh my goodness, what people do has so much to do with everyone around them, right? And there are things that we do as collectives, as groups, as family, that can be towards a common good or vice versa, right? So human occupation understood from the global south, which what we call epistemologists of the south, is, is what we, we, we've, we've done. And basically, here yeah, what I'm signaling is that to decolonize, it takes speaking from both outside professions or disciplines and within. So we, you know, some people think that decolonization is saying, no, we shouldn't have Western um, education. We should do away with disciplines. And no, we are saying, open your eyes from where you find yourself. Witness and don't allow yourself to be blinded to things that you are seeing and you realize, no, 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 no. This is genocidal. <laughs> what I'm seeing here is going to end in tears. I'm seeing this now, I'm worried, you know, within two or three generations, this community is gone. We're saying, allow yourself to witness. The same way that, that Raphael Lemkin did as a Jewish, Polish lawyer, when he saw that his people were being destroyed, what he did, he started writing down and keeping uh, an archive of documentation that was coming from uh, Hitler's administration to all the uh, peripheral uh, uh, ter territories that he wanted to colonize and said, oh my goodness, this is how technologies of genocide work in the legal sphere. This is how it works in you know, the social sphere, in the political sphere. And so you need to speak and write as you witness. Um, okay, these are the uh, definitions of the three um, uh, uh, terms. I've, I've, I've gone through them already, uh, but I think just for, for those who would be following uh, to have access to them. And I, I was intrigued by the one question where is, you know, it said, why does it seem like um, occupational consciousness is a, is a term that uh, uh, is, is puts responsibility on students um, to be <laughs> um, aware and to disrupt uh, dominant practices where they find themselves. I mean, I must say, I'm very happy that you see that um, because initially when, you know, this terminology came up and I shared it with students, um, it was easily weaponized, right? So where you look at others and you say, hey, you're not occupationally conscious. <laughs> and I had to redirect, I said, actually, 
This is a term for the oppressed to look at themselves and what they are doing every day. Because it's about your own um, occupational sphere of influence. So where I sit as deputy dean postgraduate education, I have a bed to be aware of the dynamics of hegemony and recognition that this dominant practices can be sustained through what I do every day or be, disrupt, be disrupted. Um, and, and that, you know, this has implications for both personal and collective health. I have that responsibility. So it's, it's, it pushes you to look at yourself and your occupational sphere of influence. With what I have, the tools that I have, what can I do to disrupt? So I've told you about that project around centering African languages. It is very disruptive. If you think about how dominance operates through language, you can imagine how much anxiety there can be when someone says, um, but it's time for Isikosa <laughs> to be at the center. So maybe that's pushed, maybe that's going to be pushed back. I'm ready for it. Um, there was pushback with the curriculum change framework. Um, and, you know, one day, uh, maybe I'll write about the pushback and, and how we persisted. Uh, you know, you've read the Mayosi report. Uh, you, 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 you understand um, what it means when you want to see change and you have um, some authority and you want to use that authority. Um, it can be scary. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I think the way you described the language project particularly really speaks to that question that we had about how we can use the curriculum to provide a voice to the lived experiences of students who've been previously excluded. Um, I think our next questions were just more around um, the use of education. And so what we were going to ask was, Ira Shaw and Paolo Freire visualize education as education being handed to students like a corpse of information. And that's like a dead body without connection to their living reality. So what do you think about this view? And what alternative methods do you believe should be applied in education for it to have the liberatory effect that, that we actually desire? And then our next question is just, many scholars speak on how a dialogue format to education is transformative. Yet this seems to be lost in the imagination of the reader. Um, what do you think of this perspective? Mm. So the pedagogy of the oppressed um, is as far as I went uh, with Palo Freire because um, when I read and go back and read the pedagogy of the oppressed, it speaks to me. And, and, it, and it's, it's exactly that acknowledgement that you are not going to impose a knowledge that does not work for the people that are supposedly learners. Mm -hmm. You've got to allow, you've got to give them back their agency. You've got to give them back their agency. And, and oftentimes uh, when I speak and write about um, consciousness, 
I have colleagues from South America who say, well, you know, what you're saying really um, links with what Paulo Freire um, uh, was, was, was pushing. And, you know, for me, that's exactly it. So Paulo Freire, as an interlocutor in Latin America, right, speaking in ways that Latin Americans say, aha, he's speaking a language that we understand. And for us, we've had, um, you know, those who would call themselves proponents of the Black Consciousness Movement, um, whether you, you want to, um, uh, you know, um, credit uh, Bantu, Biko with all that thinking, or you want to credit others. For me, it doesn't matter. You know, I draw from um, what uh, I read, uh, um, uh, attributed to Bantu Biko, but I also draw from Dussel, also from South America, and Fanon on consciousness, which is a mindset and a commitment to fight all forces of oppression that operate on the basis of identity, mm. where you have identity markers that already um, declare that your aspirations can only go this far. Um, so, you know, you, 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 consciousness for me is, is, is what we refer to in the curriculum change framework where we say, actually, the university is where the battle for minds is waged. Okay. So unless you acknowledge exactly that phrase that is associated with Bantu Biko, you know, um, there is no more potent weapon than the mind of the oppressed at the hands of the oppressor. I'll repeat, at a university, the battle for minds is the biggest battle. It's the mother of all battles. So you've got to take back <laughs> agency for your thinking. And what Paolo was doing was pushing for agency to go back uh, to learners, uh, to those who are being educated um, so that it works in their everyday life where they find themselves. So uh, I might have um, misheard, but I think when you introduced me, you said I was acting chair of the Academic Freedom Committee. The Academic Freedom Committee. Did you say I, I was acting? I said the time you acted. <laughs> no, no, so I was a substantive chair of the Academic Freedom Committee. And uh, um, I've, yesterday I was voted again to stay on, uh, but Senate has to approve um, first before again I have another <laughs> four years perhaps. But Senate can also remove me if they don't like what I'm doing. Um, but to tell you the, well, just my uh, interest is that we begin to respect academic freedom, not only as a right for academics, but also a right 
for students and for society to question when we as academics misuse our power. We're not saying that society must stop us <laughs> from speaking. <laughs> and, and that's the thing that people often misunderstand. When we say society or any part of society has a right to question academics, we're not saying they should shut them up. What can be so precious about us as academics such that we can never be questioned? It's a, it's a form of um, hubris that I think we inherited with westernized uh, education and the Western University that does not allow for epistemic humility. You know, where you can admit that your knowledge is only partial, that perhaps you made an error in your analysis and that you can rethink. More so when it is your own student who sits in front of you and says, mm, Prof, you know, this concept of yours, you know, occupational consciousness, what, what, um, it doesn't work, you know? When I think about it, I get stuck. There's somewhere where I just, uh, I can't get through. So maybe I'm missing something. Um, or maybe I just, it doesn't work for me, sorry, right? It is a problem if I insist that that student should continue using a concept that they don't see work in their lived reality. And even more disturbing, if I will insist that students that I supervise must cite me, must use my concept, that is not knowledge. For me, knowledge ought to be credible. It ought to be plausible. I mean, you don't have to say, well, yeah, it is true because I've seen it. it is the, you know, it's what I see in my life. You should be able to say, you know, the logic of analysis makes it possible that such and such and such can indeed be exactly as you describe. That is knowledge because it allows someone who is in South America, in Europe, to be able to share their theory uh, their uh, theorization as a um, function of discovery, you know, where they, they are theorizing from where they're at, to say, you know, given what I have observed, what I have seen, I can offer this as a contribution to knowledge. That's why I can cite Raphael Lemkin. I've never met him. You know, he's dead, right? But his analysis of how genocide happened to his people over time. I can understand it. It makes sense. It's plausible, right? So why would I deny someone from Nyanga, from Michel's plane, from Bontehievel, theorizing in context, right? As discovery, not only as confirmation, because this is the thing that we think that we must just confirm theory from elsewhere. It can't be. There's 
theory that can be confirmed, but there's also theorization as academic work. In context, you observe, you make meaning of what you observe. You have English, very useful, because it's spoken by many people, um, and we have developed it. Um, you know, even when you have some British people who might not even speak the English that we speak, because ours is an educated English, right? <laughs> so we are able to uh, speak about concepts that may no longer make sense to someone who is British, because the language has borrowed so much as it developed and became global. So we are able to put together concepts and explain phenomena as we observe in, 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 in our context. So for me, this speaks to the idea of a university where we produce knowledge that has integrity. It's not because I speak the loudest or I sound smarter than you, but it's because what I'm saying sounds plausible, you know? The, 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 the force of evidence, you know, persuades me that, yeah, I mean, this, 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 sounds, this sounds credible, right? And also knowledge that can allow for some resonance, where there's possibility for resonance. And this is where I, 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 I always say to, to my own students in postgraduate uh, supervisions, but I mean, just generally to students to say, Keep in mind your audience. If none of your family members and none of the people that come from your community can ever make it into your conception of an audience worthy to learn from you, to hear from you, then your co-option has worked. <laughs> They've taken you. You no longer belong to the people. You are gone. And, and we just can only hope that you will survive that space because it's a borrowed space. That zone of being above the line of the human for black people is a borrowed space. The minute you lose some of those props that seem to be holding you up for a while, you are back. Yeah? You will be called a da'i, you will be called the n-word you will be treated like that um so 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 the, your audience matters um yeah thank you so much for that prof um you kind of touched on the last question especially when you spoke about epistemic humility and really the last question speaks of how the practical implications of how we see in institutional culture, students really aren't given a voice. And then how do you see students being given back their voices? How do we start seeing students as co-creators of knowledge um, within this culture that we find ourselves in? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the question, hey? <laughs> the questions are powerful. Um, I've always i always say we are all look i engage mostly with postgraduate students so i often say even when you are given a reading just look at the title sit back ask yourself a few questions just allow the questions to come 
because you shouldn't allow yourself to be a passive recipient of knowledge, right? Because when you've asked those questions and you read and you find mm, that title was misleading, I actually thought this author was going to go here and where, and, but they didn't right there. You've given yourself space to co-create knowledge, right? I like supervisors who write with their students, who co-author with their students. Um, I mean, really, I think at some point, this is part of some of the work that we'll be doing to profile um, uh, um, academics who write with their students, um, especially when a student has challenged thinking and said, no, this, it, it works, but it's got gaps. Um, and you're not going to, um, you're not going to co-create in the knowledge project if you have left your community out there if they are not walking with you within these spaces in the academy you will not think of them even when you know something that is being described in a, in text uh, doesn't make sense you know sometimes you're like mm, it sounds very clever what the lecturer is saying but I'm not getting it. So usually students are very quick to doubt themselves, to say, oh, there must be something wrong. That's why I'm not getting it. Um, and that's why, you know, it can be very powerful to start asking yourself questions before you begin to receive. So it could also just be a lecture that you know that you're going to engage with uh, a day or two uh, in, in future. When you see the title of that, of that lecture, just begin to think, what may what what do i want to know about this thing you know what have i seen and observed where i come from where this thing might be relevant right you you know usually we you know we we sometimes speak about disability without bringing those people that are disabled from our homes from our communities into the space so that we can think through their experiences and even go back and check with them. You know, they're saying this in my textbook, my lecturer is saying this, 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 this. What do you make of that? Does it apply to you, right? And that's, 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 that for me is, is the, when you begin to um, take charge of your own knowledge and, um, make sure that what you graduate with is not um, just a receipt as Maskolim uh, Landu once said, you know, that sometimes that's exactly what it means. You come to this university, you pay a lot of money, you leave with just a receipt. And, and I mean, I've seen um, recent uh, reports that are not very encouraging uh, about um, rising uh, unemployment. Um, I mean, first, this, this report um, uh, titled The Changing Size and Shape of the Higher Education System in South Africa, which was published last month by someone called Ahmed um, Esop from UJ, where they're showing that as much as there's been growing participation of black students in the higher education sector, many drop out. Um, and 
you know, we still find that uh, white students, uh, even though the numbers overall are reducing, but of course they are still in uh, um, many numbers, perhaps the majority in uh, research intensive university, they are graduating um, with uh, very good uh, grades um, compared to their uh, counterparts. And then when you look at the unemployment rate that is rising amongst graduates, then you've got to recognize that something is wrong. You know, you, something is shifting. And, and I think part of it is because we are leaving our communities behind. Can you imagine if, 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 if you were allowing this westernized knowledge to interact with the spaces where you come from, the innovation, <laughs> the thinking out the box, um, such that you don't need to be given a job like our parents were. You know, if you remember how, or maybe you read somewhere how exactly Cecil John Rhodes was problematic in Southern Africa. That basically what he did was push males, black men, out of their homes, right? When every hut was taxed, right? What are you going to pay as tax if you don't earn? So then right there, the demand for cheap labor was created. And then people left their homes, they left their cattle in order to dig gold for someone else, right? So when we don't use the knowledge that we have to interact with where we come from, we basically lock ourselves into modern day slavery. And, and when they can't pay you, you are unemployed. If UCT decides that actually this COVID-19 has really scraped the barrel in terms of budgets, all of you, sorry, we can't uh, keep you employed, we retrench you. I go home to Limpopo, I'm useless. I can't even grow food, yet I have a PhD, I'm a professor. Can you see that? We, we do, there's some work to be done and it's, it's our responsibility. It's not some, they're not, no other group of people are going to save us from this conundrum. Why, why should they? <laughs> really, why should they? Thank you so much, Prof. Um, Sipo, do you have anything to believe we've completed our questions, but we've had such a, a wonderful discussion. Um, I don't know if you have anything to add before we close off. Mm, I think there was that one last question about um, must you riot, you know, must there be a, must, must there be protests first before you are heard because this is this is what you've seen that mm -hmm. we only hear you when we are on the other side of the barricades and you know this is a south african question isn't it because when you look at marikana when you look at um uh 
forget his name, but he was Andres Tatane. Um, you know, he was pretty much one of the first people whose name came to the fore um, uh, related to service delivery protests who, who died um, uh, while protesting. Um, so I don't have a simple answer except to say I have a PhD student looking exactly at that. <laughs> um, like really trying to understand um, what we mean by violence in the context of protest and looking at Rose Must Fall as a case study. Um, and and uh, Mapie Lady Mutimele is her name and uh, she is uh, busy uh, doing that work. And it's, a, it's really, you know, a lot of the students that I supervise uh, at postgraduate level know that they're not doing their PhDs only for themselves. Uh, it's not something that I push. I think it's, it's, an, it's a mutual attraction. They come to me <laughs> because they, they, they want to ask difficult questions and they want to be supported in those questions that they are asking and not have me say, no, 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 there's not going to be funding for that. Who's going to fund that, right? We say, these are important questions. We need to ask them. And this PhD is a people's PhD. We want to learn from what you will find out. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Um, I think it's been quite an amazing journey. We've looked at the past, the present, and somewhat into the future, both looking at, uh, and we've also looked at the power of language when we talked about decolonization versus um, this use of the word transformation. We've also looked at, again, the importance of language in, in the definitions of racism. And then we've also unpacked the manifestations of racism and how it affects our lives and actually what the true ramifications of racism are. And we've also looked at this understanding that racism can actually really lead to a, what is the word I'm looking for, for a to, to this genocide that, that, we've, that we've had. Um, so I think it's been quite an important thing. And as you said, we need to remember to ask those questions that what knowledge, whose knowledge, um, what and who benefits and whose interests are we working in? And I think that this is quite a, it was quite an exciting time because we've been left with a lot of things to go read up personally, a lot of things to go read up, but also um, a lot of hope uh, because it's really exciting and inspiring to hear the work that's being done. Sure. And to just people. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Prof. Um, I just wanted to say, even to just people who just come across this work, um, talking about epistemics and occupational apartheid and occupational consciousness, it's also very important that we move beyond these definitions, as you had said that terminology cultivates amnesia. I was like, wow. Um, and it's very important for us to move beyond these definitions, um, understanding, um, say, Ubuntu and how you've described it as us, as it encompassing, uh, putting marginalized peoples in the, in the center. So that is very important for us to know these things, to start asking questions and just to use knowledge to interact with our world as, world, as you said. Thank you so much 
for giving us once more language um, to interact with the systems that we that oppress us in a way or to systems that we find ourselves in and thank you so much no thank you Just as we close, I just want to remind all our listeners that there is the Google Doc. Um, the Google Doc, the search doc Google Doc is just for you to um, ask any questions and reflect on what you've listened to um, in the podcast. And then we'll also be releasing an HSSC Google Doc, which is going to be encouraging you just to reflect on your experiences on campus as well as we build and we figure out how we can actually start to have more conversations as students um, discussing decolonization and transformation. Otherwise, thank you very much and keep reading and keep listening to our podcast series. Thank you.